Well, good morning, everyone. Tell you what, Amber did a great job of describing everything um, this morning. I want to add just one thing to something she said, and that was with the Connect cards. I cannot tell you how important those are to us uh, as a staff, um, because it's almost impossible for us to truly actually talk to everybody that comes in. I try really hard, but I don't always succeed, and especially if you're a visitor or a guest, it's our only way sometimes of knowing uh, for sure that you were here. In addition to that, uh, I want to just let our people know that, hey, on those Sundays when, when you have reached out to someone and, and they have joined you, or you look across the aisle and you see someone that you don't recognize, like, I don't remember that person, it, talk with them. And then when you do that, if they are indeed new, we're going to try from now until Jesus comes home, I, I come to take us home. I, uh, I told someone earlier today, we're going to try to have some just some, some little gift bags that we've assembled for guests just to give them a little more information about the church and, and some things like that, just to thank them for being here because we know uh, there are so many options for people out there in the world. And the fact that they were willing to join us on a Sunday morning is truly, truly, truly a blessing for us. And so I'm super excited about being here with you this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father God, I'm so grateful for today, for the chance to study your word, Father, to, to dive deep, deep, deep into a letter to one of your churches, Father, a church that seems to keep coming up throughout the New Testament, a church that was a dear, dear place to the author of the letter, Paul. Father, pray that as we study this, our lives look more and more and more like the life of Christ and we begin to become even more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are just a couple of announcements that I wanted to let you know about. I don't need to mention next, next Saturday. I hope that you all can make it. Bring a friend to the Fall Festival to Hootenanny with you. Have fun with that. Um, it's going to be a great time. It starts really early, so if you're a person that doesn't like driving after night, that's fine. Uh, you'll be able to leave before dark because it starts at 5. I hear the weather might not be very fall-like next Saturday, but that's okay. We'll have a great time with it anyway. As an added bonus, next weekend as well, um, McKenna Southard, who we announced last weekend, will be coming to serve with us beginning in January as our new children's and family minister. Her and her fiance, Jason, will be here next weekend. And so your first chance to meet them will be at the Fall Festival on Saturday. They'll be a little bit late. She's got to work, but they'll be here for that. And then you'll get to meet them up front here on Sunday as well. So make sure you put that down. Make sure anybody that you know that needs to be here for that is here to, to begin to meet them. And then this is just an announcement, announcement only. I hope to have paperwork next week in your hands. Uh, the um, mission trip to Poland was supposed to be right now. I'm supposed to be gone in Poland right now with a few of you, but that wasn't able to happen. We couldn't find those couple more folks. And I talked to so many people that said, hey, if I had more time, guess what? God has given you more time. We're going April 20th, okay? Monday, April 20th is when we're going to leave. We'll be back on the 28th. There'll be more details hopefully next week in paper form for you. So just so you know, if that was you, uh, April 20th is that target date now. Um, and we've got to go because we've got to get it done for them before their summer camp season and retreat season begins even that spring. All right. So just put that on your calendar. If you're interested in that, pray about that through this week. And then maybe next week you're ready to commit to going with us. Um, it's going to be a great time. So this book of Ephesians, this letter written to the Ephesian church, the author Paul, who we'll talk about here in a second, um, knows who they are. He knows deeply who these people are. He knows them personally Many, 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 many of them. But he knows something else. He knows not just who they are, but he knows who they could become in Christ. And that's the focus of this entire series, and we'll get back to that at the end of today. See, what I love 
is the opportunity before we fully dive into the book of Ephesians is to remind you that this isn't just words on a page. This was not just an anonymous letter written to some random group of people out there. I think so many times we study God's word and when we study it, it literally are just words on a page for us. Yes, they're divinely inspired words, but we take all the human attachment out of his words. And I I think that's a shame because Paul did not anonymously write this to some random group of people with no impact or no meaning. He loved these people dearly. And when you understand the connection between the author and those who were receiving his words, then hopefully it allows you to connect a little deeper with the words that you're reading. And in essence, then, the words that God is going to move you with from this book of Ephesians. So keep that in mind. As I told you a little bit last week, God puts things together in very interesting ways. Last fall, when we were going through the book of John, I told Prudence, I said, I would love for Ephesians to be the next book of the Bible that we study together. We had no map for exactly how we would get there, but that was what I ultimately hoped to be able to do. And we didn't know for sure if that was going to get to happen. Then in June, when we got to looking at the Back to Church Sunday materials, and we found that, hey, all four of their key passages are from the book of Ephesians. What a great place to start with the book of Ephesians. And so, obviously, it was meant to be. That's exactly what we were supposed to study together. And if you were here as a result of Back to Church Sunday, thanks for coming back. If you're here this week because someone invited you last week and you couldn't make it, great. We're glad to have you here. This week, we genuinely, genuinely mean that. God is absolutely at work in this place, and he's at work in you. And so let's dive into Paul and and this letter. Paul wrote this letter to a church in a town called Ephesus, an ancient city. This letter is going to show with you who Jesus is and who you ultimately can become if you choose to follow him. Paul will share with all the believers how they can become one with the unimaginable love that God has for us. He teaches us how to become mature believers, children of light, imitators of God, how to become the husband, the wife, the child, even the family that God desires. Lastly, Paul will share with us how to become ready for the spiritual battle that we're all in the midst of right now, even in this day and age. The people of God are under attack. I don't think that is a question that any of us have. We all have an understanding of that. And the ways of the Lord are slowly being cast aside, or maybe rapidly at this point, being cast aside in favor of the ways of the world. And we are called to fight back. But we fight in a very, very different way from which the world fights. We fight with the love of Jesus instead. I'm looking forward to this study because I do truly love the book of Ephesians. Though it's short, it is so, so jam-packed with great information. So let's start with the author, a guy named Paul. There's very little dispute that Paul wrote this book. It's very, very common uh, language with his other books. It's a very common theme. It just seems to flow exactly like his other books. So there's very little doubt that he is, in fact, the author of this book. It's been said that Paul is the second most influential person in all the history of Christianity, second only to Jesus himself. He was responsible for carrying the good news of Jesus to the entire Gentile world. He wrote more than half of the books or letters in our New Covenant or the New Testament of your Bibles. When you think about that and his importance to our faith, it's a little bit more than ironic that this is the guy that God chose to do that. 
You see, because it all began with a man named Saul, a man who was deeply invested in the old covenant law. We're first, very first introduced to Saul in actually a passage that we shared just a few weeks ago in our Back to School series. We're introduced to him in the book of Acts as the physician author, Dr. Luke, gave us uh, a glimpse into the world of Paul. Now, part of that was because Luke ended up being a companion of Paul's on his travels throughout the entire Roman Empire. But in this very first scene in Acts chapter 7, we find Saul. It's the scene of Stephen as he stands before the Sanhedrin. They're furious in chapter 7, verse 54. They're furious with him. They're gnashing their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked to heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their lungs like a bunch of three-year-olds protesting. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to kill him by stoning. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now keep in mind that this man, Saul, observed every moment of this murder. He heard the words of Stephen as he cried out. It appears that he probably helped organize this mob as they created the first Christian martyr by taking the life of Stephen, a believer who had been called to a position of leadership and then was struck down right at the beginning of his ministry. So who on earth was this Saul, this young man? Well, according to his very own testimony, he was Saul of Tarsus, a born to Jewish parents around 5 AD. But his parents were Jewish by faith. However, uniquely, they were actually a full Roman citizen by law. Now, this was a great privilege that Paul then used throughout his lifetime to his great advantage. It's believed that Saul's family moved to Jerusalem around, 15, or, you know, around 10 AD. By 15 AD, Saul was well on his way in the world of Hebrew education. And at some point in time, he had a teacher. And this teacher was a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, famous lineage, this rabbi. Gamaliel was respected and influential as a teacher and a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Now, this will date you answering this question. So if you don't want to answer, I understand. But if you can think back to the 1980s, maybe even prior, there was a commercial on TV by an old, old, old financial investment company called E.F. Hutton. And the little catchphrase went something like this. Fill it in if you remember. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Now, if you follow the recent history of E.F. Hutton, that's not true anymore. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> whole other story indeed. I share that with you because of this. The scene recorded in Acts chapter 5 reminds me a lot of something like that. You keep in mind that Saul had never met Jesus at this point. Peter is teaching in Jesus' name, and he's called with the apostles in front of the Sanhedrin, and they ask him, why are you teaching in Jesus' name? We told you to quit. And in 529, Peter says, well, you see, we, we must obey God rather than man. Well, the, the Sanhedrin wasn't exactly excited with Peter's response, and they, of course, wanted to kill him. 
That's such an odd response in these, this world. We, the first thing they always seem to want to do is kill those people that they disagree. Oh, wait, no, that's very common even today, isn't it? When we don't agree with someone, even today, that seems to be a pattern that we're beginning to seal. And it was at that moment when Gamaliel stood up, everybody else shut up, he dismissed Peter and the apostles, and he began to speak to them. Acts 5, verse 35 and 39. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thedius appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed. And at it, and nothing came of it. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all the followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel was not a believer in Jesus. Oh, no, not at all. But I share this with you because it gives you some insight into the teacher that probably had the greatest influence on Paul's life, excluding Jesus. This was the man that taught Paul. This is where he learned wisdom. This is where he learned logic from. I truly believe there's evidence of this man's logic throughout the writings of Paul. We don't have writings from Gamaliel to know his thought processes and things, but I think they're carried on in the works of Paul. But there was something as I was studying this that I began to wonder. It's clearly obvious that Gamaliel was alive during the life of Paul. I wonder, do you think Paul ever went back to old Gamaliel and said, hey, old buddy, old pal, teacher, respected rabbi, why don't we sit down and have a chat about Jesus? Because I think he did. I truly do. I believe we'll see Gamaliel in heaven. I truly do. I can't imagine Paul not going to him immediately after his conversion, quite honestly. Paul later describes himself this way, as a Jew, in the book of Philippians, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. That's Paul's opinion of himself. Yeah. You could say that if anybody could have ever earned their way into heaven, I think Paul thought at least he was well on his way to accomplishing just that very thing. But we know that Paul's perspective changed, and we know and must share that there's absolutely no way anyone can ever earn their way into heaven. As a matter of fact, it's Paul that later shares in this book of Ephesians exactly how it is that we are saved. It is the verse that I asked my daughter Kaylee to paint on the wall in my office. It looks like a picture because it has a frame around it, but it is not. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, but is a gift from God. And then listen to the follow-up passage, because immediately following in verse 7 of Philippians 3, 
Paul describes all of those efforts from before. He describes them this way. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul literally dismisses everything he could have used as proof of how righteous he was, how much better he was than everyone else. He now understands that that work is garbage. It's worth nothing. Instead, he's traded all of that in for simply knowing Jesus being found in his love, having a form of righteousness that is only possible through Jesus Christ. So how on earth did this happen? How did he go from a man standing there holding coats going, oh, good job, guys, kill that man. We don't know. He needs to go away. We need to end this way. This zealous persecutor of the way of Jesus, of Nazareth, how did he transform into the second most influential person in all of Christian history? He met Jesus. He literally met Jesus, the risen Jesus. You see, as Paul stood there observing the stoning of Stephen, as he got his marching orders to go to Damascus and round up the Christians there to be arrested, he was spiritually blind. He did not see what was right in front of his face. He didn't understand that for whatever reason. And so ironically, Jesus chooses of all things when he meets him on that path to Damascus, literal, physical blindness. The reason? (laughs) So that he could open his spiritual eyes, because you don't need physical eyes to have your spiritual eyes open, you see. His spiritual eyes have been blind most of his life, and now on the road to Damascus, he was literally blinded. In Acts 9, Jesus stops Saul in his tracks, and he confronts him. He simply says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I wonder what voice Jesus said that with. What voice do you think would it take to get through Paul's thick head? (laughs) Seriously, do you think Jesus just casually said, Hey, Paul, Saul, why, why are you doing this? I don't. I think he scared him to death. It wasn't enough that he was instantaneously blinded. That blinding was followed by a very loud voice from heaven. When anyone hears a voice from heaven, they're immediately terrified anyway. With Saul, why are you persecuting me? Come on, get it together. You know I'm coming. You know who I am. Pay attention here. He could have said that Hebrew, big word, you know, little sentence, lots of meaning. We translate it into English so simply. Saul asks, who are you, Lord? See, he instantly knew who was talking to him. There was no question in Saul's mind. Jesus introduces himself and then sends him on to Damascus as a blind man, to a disciple named Ananias, another fabulous character from the book of Acts, who heals his blindness, and then Paul sets out on a new mission to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world, and that he does. One of those places is the ancient city of Ephesus. The ancient city of Ephesus ruins are still some of the greatest remaining in all of Greek and Roman society. I would love to go and visit them. You can do it right now on the western shore of Turkey. It was this ancient port city at the peak of the Greek 
Empire. It was one time one of the most important Greek trading posts. It was this huge trading center in the entire Mediterranean region. It was on the center of a trade route from the Far East to the Western culture, a diverse city filled with all kinds of cultural influences, religious influences from all over the world. It was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of the Greek god Artemis. This is only an artistic representation that you see, but it was said to be at least four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. It was enormous in stature. A city of 250,000 people was a perfect place to go if you wanted something to spread across the known world. But for Paul, there was way more to it than just that. It was a very special place. The first recorded incident doesn't make it seem very special. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 18. In verse 19, he's there on a visit with two of his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. He visits the synagogue, and he, he reasoned with the Jews there. And at the end of his time, they said, hey, can you stay longer? But he was unable. He told them in verse 21, I will come back if it is the Lord's will. After he leaves, another traveling preacher comes along through Ephesus. That preacher's name was Apollos, we later learn. And he speaks boldly and accurately about Jesus. But there were some finer points of Jesus that Apollos didn't quite understand or have knowledge of yet. And so Paul being gone, Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and they share with him these finer points of the faith, ones that they probably learned from Paul. And the church officially begins in Ephesus. So why did Paul only stay this very short period of time? Why such a special connection later on when he writes this letter? How do we know that he had such a unique bond with this group of people in Ephesus? Well, the next time that Paul came to Ephesus was likely in the fall of 54 AD. And this time he stayed for as much as three and a half years. Paul did not stay places three and a half years. He came in, he preached the good news. He persuaded people to Christ. He trained, raised up, and then appointed leaders, and then he dismissed himself on to the next town. So what on earth caused Paul to stay in Ephesus? Well, first of all, it was God who caused Paul to stay in Ephesus. Paul listened to God's guidance and direction like no one else in scripture, I truly believe. He often will confess in his letters that, hey guys, I really, really wanted to stay with you longer, but God moved me. Hey, I really, really, really want to come to you, but God has prevented me from coming. He seems to be really in tune with what God wants him to do. So Paul definitely had a call to stay in the town of Ephesus. Now he might have also, in addition to that, stayed because of success. In Acts 19, he found disciples of Jesus already there. Remember, Apollos came in and began teaching more people about Jesus. And so he had an audience, if you will, and he gathered that audience together, and the element that was missing was the baptism, which Jesus taught, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He could have stayed because of failure. Failure wasn't an option for him, and he had to reach these people, so he had to keep preaching Jesus. In Acts 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Three months. He continued to preach in the same spot every day for three months. What preacher wouldn't love to have an audience for three months, right? Yeah, exactly. That's why he kept going back. However, in verse 9, it really, you realize that uh, some of the people that he was preaching to in those three months became obstinate. They refused to believe. They publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. 
I want you to hear that part too. Did you realize the second most influential person in Christian history, did you hear what he just did? The people were being a pain in the rear end. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to follow Jesus. They started criticizing the way that he was presenting Jesus. So he's like, fine, goodbye. I'll go somewhere else where people might listen and believe there's no point in trying to reach those that are obstinate when there's those that are lost. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Theronus. He went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Now, I'm sure there's some artistic license that Luke is taking in writing these words of Acts, but that's a lot of Greeks and Jews that are passing through town, spreading the good news of Jesus. Paul was an intellectual and a religious zealot. He had an intelligence where he could sit down with the most highly educated person in his society and reason with them about Jesus. But he had the passion for Jesus that allowed him to sit down with the common folk, with the travelers, with the other people, the tradesmen who were just in town on a pilgrimage to the Temple of Artemis. Why would people listen? Why would people stop and listen to this random guy named Paul in this crazy story that's so different from what they've heard? As you begin to think about that, first consider this. The Holy Spirit is at work in those people who came to listen. The Holy Spirit, God knew who those people were, who they would become in him, and how they would spread this good news across the Roman Empire. Could you imagine being that businessman traveling back to Ephesus and there's something just different about that trip on your way there? You don't know what it is, but there's just something different and then one day you encountered Paul and his teachings. Imagine that person going to the lecture hall as you did every day, just a little heart beating a little different that day on your way there, not knowing what's going to happen when you get there and you encounter Paul and the risen Savior Jesus that he's preaching that happens to all of us. Why did they listen? Paul's message was so radically different than anything any of them had ever heard in their entire life. Now, there was an element that wasn't. A God coming to earth and interacting with man, you see, that was pretty common in Greek and Roman mythology. That's not all that unusual. But a God who gave up everything in order to save his creation, a God who does the work to make the sacrifice for our sins? A God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life? Now that, that was unheard of in their world and incredibly appealing it appears. In Acts 9, Luke records some other things that happened. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illness were cured and evil spirits left them. Why did Paul stay in Ephesus so long? Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, trying to evoke them in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say things like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Skuos, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. Imagine their surprise. They go to cast out demons, and the demons say, hey, wait a minute. Jesus we know, uh, Paul, Paul we've heard about, but who are you? Uh, That's probably not the response they were looking for. And the man of the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, beat them up, kicked them out of the house naked and bleeding. Yeah. When that became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, everyone was seized with fear, as you can imagine. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. 
Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. The number, a number who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They calculated the value of these scrolls. It came to 50,000 drachmas. That's about a day's wage, 50,000 of them, about $5.5 million, 137 years worth of wages, in case you wondered what just went up in smoke. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Paul stayed in Ephesus, and look what happened. He stayed in the good news of Jesus, his coming to earth, his perfect life, his teaching. His death, burial, and resurrection became known to an untold number of people. The church grew throughout Ephesus and across the known world because of the volume of travelers that would pass through this huge international hub. But there was one last reason why we know that there was a different connection between Paul and this church versus the Corinthians or the Thessalonians or the Galatians. And it comes from Acts chapter 20. Paul has decided God is leading him to make his final trip to Jerusalem. Now, the end of the story, this is the trip where he ultimately will be arrested, ultimately end up in Rome, and ultimately be executed. But on his way to Jerusalem from Miletus, Paul sent a special word to the elders at the church in Ephesus. He didn't do this with any other group. When those elders arrived, he began to speak with them. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came in to the province of Asia. This was over three years. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you openly and publicly from house to house. I have declared to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task that Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Verse 25, now I know that none of you who have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, keeping watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from among your own number, will arise to distort the truth in order to draw out the disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Now I commit to you to God. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must keep help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is blessed, more blessed to give than receive. And then those last two verses, 30, or th- three verses, 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept 
as they embraced him and kissed him, what grieved them most was his statement. They would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to his ship. This is the last time he would ever see anyone from the church in Ephesus. Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians while under house arrest, under Roman guards. The elders and Paul were correct. They would never see one another. The title of the series is Become. Paul had spent such a great deal of time with these people. He knew them very well. He knew their struggles. He knew their past. And I believe it was revealed in this passage that God told Paul exactly the things that they would be dealing with in the future. You heard that in this address to the elders. He warned them of very specific things. One of the elders, probably maybe even one that was there that day, was going to come in and begin to destroy the church of God in that place. Paul writes this letter from the position of a spiritual father who's capable of looking past the present and share with them who they could become. And God has preserved this letter, this advice for us. I can't wait to dive into chapter 1. Next week, as we hear Paul's love for these people poured out to them and ultimately to us. But the phrase that came back to mind to me as we dove into this was actually a phrase that we, I coined back during this series in John, and that is this. We can never become who God wants us to be by remaining who we are. Whoever you are right now, listening right now in this space today, is not who God wants you to be tomorrow or the next day or 10 years from now or when you go home to be with him. He wants us to daily become more like Jesus. Are we doing that? Father God, as we dive into your word in this incredible book that you've given us, this letter full of passion, full of advice, full of encouragement to your people in Ephesus through the hand of Paul. I pray that we can connect with Paul's story. Father, who he was before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and then ultimately everything that you did after Paul died to himself, considered all of his past to be garbage compared to what he found in your son. Father, as we begin this study, if there's anyone here that's never made that confession, never set that past aside like Paul did, I pray that Moments like this will be the time where they realize that I, I will never be who Jesus wants me to be if I don't first come to him. And Father, at the same time, so many of us have been in the church for so long that we've ceased to become anything other than who we are. And that is not your desire for our lives. Father, we're to daily become more and more like you. We're daily to love more people in new ways. We're daily called to be stretched in our faith and to grow closer to you. I pray that that challenge is met throughout this series, and we continue to grow closer to you first and foremost as individuals, as a church, that we continue to grow closer to one another as a community of believers, and that we continue to grow to reach out to those that do not know your love yet. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.